Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. Our guest this week is playwright, author, and screenwriter Mark Steensland. And this week we'll be talking about our all-time favorite horror films. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society. I'm Mike Berlin, director of photography for Music Choice and the man who haunts Erica Berlin. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Wow. Appropriate. <laughs> King of that the is appropriate. We have a special guest. This is a reunion episode of sorts here for Halloween. Mark, been following you for a while and we'll get into every everything that you're in now, but let's start at the beginning. Are you originally from Northwestern Pennsylvania or did you come here and then depart? B. Yes. I, <laughs> I came there and then departed. Yeah, I... Uh, I'm a California native. I'm the only California native in my family. The rest of my older brothers were all born in Minnesota. And then uh, my family moved to California. And then that's where I was born. And uh, I took a job uh, teaching film at Penn State. And that would have been in 2004. And so from 2004 to, I think it was December of 2012 or so, uh, I was there teaching and then we moved back to California. And so that's where I am now. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to remember when we all met and had you at that point in time, before you started working for Penn State, were you writing scripts and things all yeah, right before I, then? Yeah, I'd already directed two features before I came to Penn State. And, uh, you know, I'd worked in a lot of other different capacities. And I'd been teaching at a university in Southern California. That was, you know, what I was doing right before I got uh, by, hired by Penn State. Okay. So, Tell me about these first, uh, these first features. The first features, um, let's see, the first one is, uh, let's see, I made in 1996, I think the release date on is 97, uh, called The Last Way Out, and uh, it is purposefully kind of like a 1950s crime drama, uh, like, uh, oh, The Big Heat or White Heat or, you know, those those kind of noir films, so not not really like the smoky kind of fedora wearing sort of stuff, but uh, the more brightly lit kind of things that crime oriented kinds of things that were happening in the 50s. So, I mean, that was my intention. And um, I was working for a production company at the time that uh, this was, of course, many years before all of our tremendously advanced technology now. So the, the beta cam that we used to shoot commercials and industrial training films on, you know, it was an $80,000 camera. And um, that guy bought also the first, uh, one of the very first nonlinear editing systems, uh, a system called the FAST. It was a German system. And uh, that cost, I can't remember, $60,000 or something. It had, we were, we were stunned because it had two one gigabyte drives and they were the size of shoe boxes, okay? And they were, you know, stacked to the side of the computer. We were like, 
blown away that we could get five to one compression of shooting the video and digitizing the video into the computer and then cutting on the computer. But I had access to all of this stuff. And so I talked the guy into letting me use it when it wasn't being used for the stuff that we were doing. And I had met all of these actors through my work there. And of course, the guy that I shot with. And I mean, I was shooting and cutting and writing with the production company. So we we got it all together. I raised $10,000. Um, we shot the movie. And uh, then I started to try to get distribution. And again, this was back in the days, you know, 97. Uh, if you shot on video, it meant you you'd made a porn. Uh, you know, so that was the reaction was like, you know, so this is a, an adult film. I'm like, no, you know, this is not an adult film. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a feature. And so I was really kind of turned down uh, over and over again. And as luck would have it, I ended up getting a job working as a sales rep for a video distribution company. I sold movies to video stores. And uh, so I had a number of, I, I kind of got the rep as being a as being the eclectic, you know, film guy. And so they gave me all of these really incredible accounts like Scarecrow Video up in Seattle was one of my accounts. Video Room in Oakland was one of my accounts. I mean, these major places that were known for taking, you know, the more uh, outre kinds of uh, things. And so anyway, I had a great time. I was working with those guys and I told them about this movie and they're like, well, let's sell it. <laughs> and so uh, we literally got the whole sales team behind this thing, produced it and sold uh, enough copies um, on VHS to video stores all over the country to double my investors' money. Wow. And, um, and so that's the way it came out. And then after that, I ended up selling it to Troma of all places. And so that is who currently has the uh, kind of the master in their vault. They have, they've hardly done anything with it, but it's still in their catalog. And it's rough, you know, I mean, it's rough. It was an early thing. It was, um, you know, definitely not my best work, but I mean, it was my best work at the time. So, uh, and then after that, I uh, had met a guy through the video store and uh, he, I was a big Phil Dick fan, and he knew some people who had known Phil Dick personally. And I started getting this idea of, I wanted to make a documentary about Philip K. Dick's religious experiences, okay? So not about his writing per se, not about the film adaptations, but about this weird thing that happened to him late in his life where he saw this pink beam of light and he had all these visions of you know, that he was caught up in this conspiracy and, you know, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. So I wanted to make a movie out of that. I wanted to interview people who knew him during that experience. And uh, at the time, like there was no real footage of Phil. Uh, there was some, I think there was a, an interview that he'd done late in his life because he died before Blade Runner came out. So that would have been early 80s. I think there was an interview with him on French television or something. We couldn't get access to it. So I, hi I had some audio recordings and I hired some animators to animate Phil and then we put the recordings of his words in you know this animated character's mouth and we had him sort of giving these statements interspersed with these other interviews and I mean again it was like 
so low budget. I mean, I, this one was like even less than $5,000. Um, but I got connected with some interesting people um, and uh, the Sci-Fi Channel, uh, which was just kind of getting going and they heard about us and they called us up and they said they wanted us in their first film festival. So this was back in 2001. And uh, so we premiered, our world premiere was at the first Sci-Fi Channel Film Festival. I don't think that they did it maybe more than a couple of times after that. It may have only been the one time. But unfortunately, I didn't get to go. Uh, and, that's what I was going to ask. Um, yeah, didn't get to go. And then there were some other things. And that was right when 9-11 uh, happened. And so like one of my screenings was going to be at the Seattle uh, Art Museum and it was canceled because everything was grounded, you know, at the time. Wow. But the interesting thing is that when I finished that film and then we were going out, we got distribution right away. Um, we actually had a theatrical release in uh, New York, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, and then came out on home video. And nobody said anything about about the fact that we shot it on video. It wasn't even shot on Betacam. It was shot mm. on Canon. It was shot on an L2. And... Um, because it was documentary, sure. basically, do you think? Well, no, because a little movie called The Blair Witch Project had come out in between Last Way Out and uh, The Gospel According to Philip K. Dick, which is the second film. And, you know, and it made $100,000, I mean, $100 million at the box office. And so suddenly that was the end of anybody caring about video. And it really kind of kicked off that whole thing i mean you all those films that started uh like chuck and buck and um you know help me out what are some others that are from that same period um, oh man there's a sigourney oh. weaver one um rats. shot on film or shot, shot on digital with, shot on digital with, uh i mean the one i always think of uh in the spirit of things 28 days later but might yeah, be a it was, little bit was, little, it was a, a little bit later a little bit later yeah. yeah, but still, I mean, you know, yeah, that's exactly right. It was that kind of thing. The celebration, of course, was in like, uh, that was 98 or 9, I think, right. something like that. So um, anyway, yeah, and totally started to change things, of course. So to our benefit, you know, um, a lot of people really hated that movie, hated um, my Phil Dick movie because it didn't talk about the books. It didn't talk about the movies, you know, the and purists. Kind of stuff. And I mean, that's. What's that? The purists. The purists, right. yeah. I mean, you know, they and they wanted whatever. Anyway, and so that wasn't what I was interested in. I mean, that wasn't what the movie was about anyway. But you know, I made money on it for a long time. So, so that was uh, uh that was the gospel of Philip K. Dick, right? The gospel according to Philip K. Oh, Dick. According to okay. Okay. I mean, all right, let's let's back up. It's really ballsy, Mark, <laughs> to do like features right out of the gate. I mean, it's <laughs> let alone have two that uh made their money back i mean kudos to you um yeah did you write Thanks. and direct your first feature as well did you write yes. and direct yeah and produced okay <laughs> <laughs> you know so so everybody was basically doing i mean i love this story because everybody was you know working for almost nothing of course we were trying to put as much into the production itself and i had all of these actors who had all these crazy schedules, you know, and we were just like, we were getting it when we could, you know, like, okay, we've got five hours on Saturday. So what can we do? Let's go to this location and let's shoot those scenes. 
and see if we can get that. And a couple of times we had some locations that we really had to like shoot in until we were done because they were costing us money. But the actors couldn't be there all together. So I literally had to shoot people talking to no one and have them do their lines and then have the other actors come in and change the angle and have them talking to no one and and then put it together in the editing room. So when you see some of these complex scenes in the hotel sequences, especially, none of those actors were in the same room together at the same time. And it's all put together in the, in, you know, the cutting room after. And uh, so, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty challenging. And I mean, there's a lot that I like about that movie. There's a lot I don't like about it also, you know, at this point it's, I guess it's my fear and desire, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'm thinking about it. I don't think I've ever seen the last way out. Yeah. There's a, I think there's a trailer. I think I have a trailer for it on YouTube. Even that's kind of cringy to me now. <laughs> um, but uh but I mean, you know, it was a great experience. I had a great experience. I worked with a lot of really talented people, actors especially, really good and really brought it. And, um, you know, so, I mean, in a different time and place, I think it, you know, it could have been a totally different story. But again, at the time, uh, the shot on video thing, plus it was black and white. I've made it black and white because I was trying to minimize the video effect. And it, so it ended up kind of enhancing that, you know, when you see some of those, um, you know, recordings of old television, live television shows from the 50s, you know, like the Rod Serling, like Patterns, Requiem for Heavyweight and stuff like that. The old, I think they call them kinescopes. Is that right? Um, but, sure. um, you know, when you see those things, it's sort of like that. And that was kind of, I mean, it was the vibe I was going for. And of course, you know, that's pretty obscure for most people so uh yeah but that's cool mark real quick do you remember what camera was it an ikigama you're talking beta like yeah i think i think it was yeah Yeah. it was big i mean it was really big the batteries were you know these brick batteries that would last for you know i don't know an hour and a half or something and they were pretty good sized there's a lot those cameras were heavy yeah those are really heavy cameras yeah yeah and it was there was a lot then that we couldn't do obviously we were you know on a tripod most of the time and uh i mean we did have a dolly for some stuff and you know it was pretty i remember it was pretty big but i mean when i was in pennsylvania and i started making all the shorts the cameras were so much smaller you know, I mean, I built my own crane and, you know, built my own dolly and stuff like that. And I mean, that was all uh, in a totally different, you know, totally different kind of world then, of course, with all those shorts. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a good segue. to So then coming to uh, Erie, you know, teaching, teaching brought you back. Did you, um, you know, in those days, that's when you had... Uh, what, like the Tarantinos or Robert Rodriguez, Kevin Smith, you know, like kind of all these indie success stories. So it's probably an interesting time to be teaching filmmaking because, you know, everyone thought they were going to be the next, right? Like everybody was going to go to Sundance, uh, Miramax was going to buy your film and, you know, yes. you're you're going to be set, set for life. Yes. Um, did yeah. you bring some of that DIY attitude to, to well i mean yeah i mean that was because that's the way that i had done the two features you know i mean the documentary was literally the crew of two 
And most of what the feature was, uh, was I think the most we ever got was maybe three or four total crew, total crew. I mean, you know, I was doing with the camera guy and all the lighting, you know, we were doing all that stuff together. I mean, a makeup artist would come in and, and do that stuff, but otherwise we were really kind of doing everything. So, yeah, I mean, that and that was important to my teaching anyway. And at the university where I was in Southern California before coming to Erie, everybody was obsessed with Boondock Saints was the movie at the time. That was, you know, the big success story. And uh, but very much in the same kind of vein that you're talking about and uh, everybody thinking that that's what they were going to do and so forth. And but to be fair, there were some some of my students from that university had some had some pretty good success. A couple of guys had made a feature um, on video that I helped them kind of get distribution for through a guy who had distributed Last Way Out actually before Trauma got it. They made a movie, uh, 300 had come out, and they did this comic version of 300 because you know you have a green screen you can do anything you got photoshop and after effects and all this kind of stuff and so they made this comic short of 300 and that ended up i think getting turned into a feature somebody hired them to turn it because it had gone viral you know so anyway i mean some of those kinds of things were happening for sure and um, and so then when I came to Penn State and was teaching and I was in charge of the production side of things there. So I was really the production instructor. I, I had all the labs were my responsibility. All the equipment was my responsibility. And so I was able to make all of those decisions and then, of course, involve the students in the work that I was doing as I was making short films. And, you know, that ended up being a lot of fun. Uh, as well. In fact, um, Peekers, which was produced by one of my students as his senior project, the coolest part of that was that after he finished his senior project that semester, he went uh, abroad to do a semester in the UK. And that's when we got into Dead by Dawn in Scotland and he got to go be the rep for the film and we won uh, the short prize at Dead by Dawn. And so he was there to accept that and everything. It was just such a cool experience, you know, and it was so much fun to involve the students that way, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, you, they then went into a string of like, what was it maybe half a dozen shorts that you made. And really you had the structure down. Uh, I remember like when there was gonna be a new Mark Steensland short, you know, you always got that hook in the timing, you know, like it's like you figured out the, not to say there's a formula to shorts, but yours for sure, uh, they all worked. Um, so I'm curious, you know, cause getting back to what I was saying before, you kind of did it backwards in a way, like usually, you know, you'll start with the shorts and kind <laughs> yeah. of get the craft down and the storytelling, but you swung for the, for the fence at, right out of the gate, but then went back to short. So I'm curious, was that intentional? Was that just because of the resources that were available in Pennsylvania versus California or? Well, yeah, I mean, I had made shorts before the features. Um, they just don't exist anymore. Um, and it's because it was all film. Um, so when I went to film school in 83, 84, um, I went to Ithaca College, um, you know, upstate New York, 
for film school for a little while. That was one of the places I went. I mean, everything was film. You know, we, we shot film, we developed our own film. Um, you cut on a flatbed, you know, audio was transferred to Magstock, cut with razor blades, you know, taped together. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it was an incredibly expensive process. If you wanted to make a short film, you know, it wasn't like, oh, hey guys, let's, let me whip out my phone, you know, and let's drive around and make a short film and I'll cut it and upload it to YouTube. You know, I mean, it was a really very, very different process. So we had to make shorts uh, for classes there and they were very small kinds of, uh, you know, different experimental kinds of things. And I had done a bunch of Super 8 stuff prior to that, uh, you know, inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, which was kind of my indie success story. You know, that was what inspired me. I was like 14, I think, when that came out. And so, you know, that was a, a real a watershed moment, a different kind of moment of realizing, hey, you know, this guy made this movie for much less than what other people are doing. And he made a ton of money and he's got this really interesting career. And, you know, so, um, so that was, you know, I did a lot of stuff with Super 8, those film things. So, yeah, but I mean, essentially, yes, you're right. It was kind of backwards. And I did the two features and coming to, to Erie, I wanted to do features and we know that I did one that doesn't exist um, also uh, you know while there but yeah I mean I started kind of putting that together and thinking okay I'm going to do these shorts and I'm going to start trying to kind of get these into the into the festival circuit and and that kind of stuff I mean and frankly all of this was even the first feature the reason I did it was because I was trying to show people what kind of writer I was and, and, you know, I couldn't get a movie made by somebody else of one of my scripts. So I had written a script. I'm like, I'm going to make this. I mean, and the thing is, you know, the last way out, it's insane, you know, to, to think that I thought I was going to make that myself and did because it's got a, it's got a, the climax is a, a robbery of a movie theater and a shootout, you know, and all of this kind of crazy stuff, which, you know, we, we pulled it together. I mean, we did it, I mean, you know, but so yeah, then in Pennsylvania, I think the first one that I did there was a thing called Sucker. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shannon Solo and mm -hmm. Camille Jones. Yep. And it was just a way of kind of trying to get connected to who's the community here? Who are the actors here? Who are the, you know, who's doing what and sort of, making those connections and uh you know and then building things up and i think that was dead at 17 the second one i don't know it may have been um and then, let, me look, let me look you up while you're talking <laughs> i can't remember um and then peakers and then i think ugly file and weeping woman and i think those were the ones that uh that i made there yeah, IMDb has you sucker loves Lovecraft's pillow. Lovecraft's pillow, God, dead at seventeen. Yes. Peaker's ugly file, weeping woman. Weeping woman, yeah, okay, yeah, Lovecraft's pillow. That's right. Um, so how did you start? So you moved to a new area. Was it kind of through your students initially, or how did you kind of get plugged into finding actors and and people um, when you were first starting out? Because we didn't have you know the Facebook 
and the Twitter and, and things back <laughs> well, then. Well, I mean, we, we did. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I'm thinking back of my students now and I'm thinking uh, of at the time, you know, MySpace was just kind of waning. And uh, but a lot of the, the reputation at the time was Twitter was for old people. Uh, Facebook was for white people. And, and and MySpace was for everybody else, you know. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, the thing that I'd done in, in California for the first feature was I had found all my actors through the local theater scene. So when I was casting, I just went to see every production in town and looked at people and said, okay, you know, that person is really good. And then go up to them after a show and say, I'm making a movie. Uh, you know, do you want to talk to me about it? Is that something you're interested in? You know, um, and so it seems to me like I talked to Almi. Is it Almi Clerken? Yes. At the Playhouse, mm -hmm. Sean Clerken's wife, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it seems to me like I probably called the Playhouse and said something about I'm interested in doing some casting or, you know, something, something. And I mean, it's, it's funny because I was just looking through my files for something else. And I found, I still have like the original audition sign-in sheets for Camille and for Shannon Solo, you know, headshots and stuff when they came in to audition for that stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, we did the audition and I said, you two are good. And, you know, uh, and then started meeting other people. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a small community stuff. Word gets around fairly quickly. And uh, so... Yeah, so then we did Sucker. Yeah, and then Lovecraft Pillow. And that was, uh, that had Shannon in it also, but also it had Mangione, Christine. I can't remember what her name was, uh, who was the theater instructor at Barrand. Yeah, Christine Mangone, Mangione, yeah. Yeah, okay. And so she was in it. And, um, you know, and so again, starting to do that and starting to go through that process and then getting a little more elaborate, you know, building more equipment, you know, Lovecraft's pillow was the, I mean, I had the crane that I built for sucker. Um, and then I built this crazy extension thing for Lovecraft's pillow so that we could do that insane shot at the beginning that goes down this pawn shop sign, which I also built. Um, that we, I can't remember what shop we shot that at, what part of town that was. I mean, if I looked at a map, I could figure it out. And then people hear about you. Scott McClelland over at the Roadhouse said, you've got to talk to Mike Lechner. He's like, he's so amazing. And so then Mike came on for Peekers and, uh, and the Ugly File. I'd met Stephen Jeffries at Erie Horror Fest. And so, you know, got him to be in Weeping Woman and that, uh, you know, you have to put the effort out you know you have to make you have to know how to make the connections and then you have to go and go and make the connections you know yeah it's around this time uh that that i think you and erica and i all met you know in in this early phase of your of your shorts yeah i would i think so because as we were talking before the podcast so erica um, had graduated from Behrend and had come back to see me because we were doing something related to what she was working on at the time with another professor there. Um, and I think that you and I met, was it through Erie Horror Fest? 
yeah, I think it was through through the Rop family, through Greg. Yeah, for sure. And we were yeah, um, I... maybe really early on, Mark. I think we were part of, you know, a, a board of the Film Society. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Film Society wasn't doing, you know, too much. Um, right. You know, we've, we've grown quite a bit since then. But I remember, like, meeting with you and Greg at Perkins in Edinburgh. <laughs> And trying to yes. figure out, you know, what, what we wanted to do um, with the Perkins. area. I mean, yeah, back nice. then it was like, you know, it was Wild West. Like everyone was just doing their own thing. There wasn't like really any organization. Um, and the best thing that really was going in Erie was uh, the Erie Horror Fest. It was really like the only kind of organized entity for film. Um, and then it was just the, right. you know crazy independent filmmakers that were like DIYing it and just figuring it out on our own um, kind of thing. So and there's another memory that's clicking in because um, uh, I remember also helping, we were talking about some different things that I was involved with early on with the films with, you know, Northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, and it was when they shot the road uh, there and I remember taking that guy around also. Uh, what was his name? Oh man, I can't remember. Yeah, talk talk about some of the early early days. So there was a Danny DeVito and Morgan Freeman project that wanted to use the Brig Niagara, and that and, um, you helped out there. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just one of those. Th I mean we never I never met them. I know that they had talked to because we were kind of trying to interface with the, you know, the bureaucratic political side of things there. I don't know, the mayor's office or, you know, whatever. And it seemed to me that, I mean, you know, that there had been some things that had been kind of shot around the area. And of course, lots and lots of stuff going on down in Pittsburgh and had been for a long time, of course, with Romero and all of that stuff. And I was involved with, you know, with Savini School for a long time. Also, I was the consultant there. I designed his whole film program, designed all the facilities for the film side. Of oh, I did not know that. Well. That's that's cool. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, when was this like when on. you was this when you first moved up here around that time? Um, no, I met him at the Horror Fest. Um, Savini came to the Horror Fest one time and he was he started talking to me and I knew him from many years before when I was a journalist and uh, and I was on Day of the Dead as a journalist for the big weekend when all the journalists came and they put us in the movie. So we all got made up as zombies and put into Day of the Dead. So I had known Savini from then and uh, and then to meet him again and then talk to him. And then I was telling him about my filmmaking and my teaching. And he was like, we're doing a filmmaking side of my program. What would it take to you know get you involved with that? And for a minute, I almost resigned from Barron and went down to run that program. But they couldn't, you know, we couldn't work it out. Um, and so I ended up just working as a consultant uh, and basically writing the curriculum for the program and then designing. They had gotten these uh, other buildings next to the buildings where the makeup program was housed. And they said, what do we do with this? And I said, you know, well, here, you, you know, you divide the space up like this. You put the editing rooms here. You put 
you know, the different departments here, you put this into a sound stage, you put a green screen over there, here's all the equipment you buy, you know, and all that stuff. And then I was helping them hiring uh, personnel to, to teach and, uh, and so forth. So, and that was just kind of going on at the same time that I was doing the other stuff. Um, okay. So, and we almost, you know, we almost did some stuff together. We almost did a short together. Um, and then that didn't work out either. And then, you know, they kind of got it off the ground and I wasn't needed anymore as the consultant. So I think there was a lot of stuff going on. And like then when there were real things like the guy with, you know, for shooting the road, cause they were shooting down on, uh, what's that highway that goes through the tunnel down near Pittsburgh. Actually, the abandoned highway. Yes. Yeah. The abandoned highway. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, they were there to shoot on that, of course. And then they wanted to use Erie as the ocean for the ending of the movie. And so he was up location scouting for that stuff. And I was helping him with that. And then um, Tony Todd had come to the Horror Fest and uh and tony was terrific he was just so immediate eerie and so fascinated with everything that he wrote this movie that he wanted to shoot there and so then he wanted to see you know what locations uh could we get and so forth so um i spent you know a, quite a good amount of time with tony driving around taking pictures uh with my wife taking pictures of locations and stuff for him to use. And I mean, of course, you know, that unfortunately didn't, uh, didn't happen either, but I mean, that's fairly common, you know, lots of stuff is you plan, you dream, and then you move on to something else for one reason or another, you know? So. Yeah. I had uh, forgotten about the yeah. Tony Todd one. Yeah. It's, that's why these reunions are good, you know, can refresh each yeah. other. <laughs> well then Mark, we, yeah, right. Then we we lost you right about when, um, you know, the film society started picking up speed. And now, you know, we've, we're really getting getting our shit together now. What pulled you away? Was it, um, you know, you, you need to go? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she, she couldn't handle 13 feet of snow, you know, uh, <laughs> every year, <laughs> even though she never shoveled. Um, but, uh, you know, that was... Uh, that was just, it was too much. Um, and, uh, you know, and there were some other, I mean, to be fair, there were some other things going on. My, uh, my mom was in ill health and, um, you know, then her mom started to have, have health problems and stuff. And so, you know, California is a pretty fair distance from Pennsylvania. And so, um, yeah, so we came back to California, basically to where we're both kind of from, Northern California, near Sacramento. And uh, yeah, that was in... You've been very busy writing uh, since then, for sure. What What are some yes. some some yeah. highlights? I mean, one of, the, one of the other things that I was doing when I was in, uh, in Pennsylvania was um, that I wrote a kid's book and uh, that got bought by Random House that was released in October of 2012. So uh, no genre that didn't have a genre element to it. Oh yeah, no, it did. It was a, it was a scary, yeah, it was a, it was a scary middle grade book. It was um, for middle grade readers. So like eight to 11 year olds or so. 
um, behind the bookcase. And so, you know, I, the, that was one of the last things that I did back there was Random House put me on a book tour and I went to a whole bunch of different schools to give a presentation and to sign books for the kids and, and stuff like that. And so that was really a lot of fun. But that was, again, you know, something else that I was trying to develop was also getting into the fiction writing. So I sold them a second book and I was working on writing that. And then I had written some other adult books, right? You know, books for grownups and always writing screenplays. I mean, at the same time, and there were, you know, there were things that we tried to do. I mean, I wrote several feature scripts in Erie and for that location that we tried to get off the ground. And, you know, one of those was the special, um, which I wrote in 2006 originally. So you wrote and, it originally to be shot in Erie? No, oh yeah, no. yeah, it was gonna be, I mean, we were very far along. Lisa Knight was producing and Mike Lechner was one lead. Um, Aaron Pacey was gonna be the second lead. Scott McClelland was gonna be in it. Uh, you know, so we, we really were going, it looked like it was gonna happen. I mean, we were getting, closer and closer and we were trying to get the money enough money together because it's you know when you get to that level and it's like well you know you can't just kind of do the way I was doing the shorts I mean the shorts were all really cheap and and then it just kind of fell apart we we couldn't pull it all off uh, Tony Todd was actually going to be in it he was going to play oh, wow. uh, one of the detectives anyway so that didn't go um I wrote another one uh called Jimmy the Freak uh, which was specifically written for Mike and Aaron and Scott. And um, and that was all written for Erie, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, um, West Virginia, you know. So, um, so there were those things, you know, that we wanted to do, but didn't. And so I took those things with me when I came to California and of course, you know, started writing more. Um, so, um, and then I also wrote, uh, started writing anyway, Jacob's Wife when I was there because Al and June Braun were this terrific older couple and I wanted to do something with them as well. And so, you know, I kind of, again, it was one of those things that I brought with me back to California and, and then started uh, kind of writing rewriting those things and so forth and so you know the long game that you play with all of this stuff and everything is takes so long um the the special ended up getting passed to uh bruce smith by monster mark i mean mark kazabucky was going to do the special effects for the special and he had worked on something else with Bruce and he told Bruce about this script and Bruce read it. He's like, I want to make this movie, you know. I think it took him like four years to finally come back around and say, I've got the money, you know, and we're ready to to close the deal on this. And uh, and so then they shot that. I mean, it was like two years ago we made the deal. I think they shot it in January of last year. Past January was the world premiere in San Francisco at the Indie Fest. And then, of course, at Grimfest, where you were as yeah, well. Yeah, Grimfest, um, yes. Which is, you know, pretty great to see your name. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now it just came out, um, you know. Hold on, the... Mark. Can you, can you real quick say, like, the synopsis for this special? Because I think <laughs> I think it has a special, a special story we don't want to gloss over. Well, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not for everybody, but it's about a guy who has an affair with 
something that lives inside a small box. A small um, box with a, a tiny, well, not a tiny, but a hole cut in, cut in. With a hole cut in it, yeah. With a hole cut in the side, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Erica's that- face right now is, is precious. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah anyway i mean and that was you know frankly that was kind of the I reaction that's a, i believe that's an snl skit right well uh, thank you yeah dick in a box was an snl thing and the irony is that i wrote the script before dick in a box and it was so funny because i wrote the script and i had submitted it to film festival and the script you know like made the finals in the competition and then all of a sudden, here's this SNL thing, this stick in a box. I'm like, oh, great. Everybody's going to think that I just took that, you know, and made it into this horror movie. Um, but no, anyway, hung around, you know. And the reaction was, like, when we were trying to make it in Erie, there were some people who were kind of involved with us. And they are like, I remember Lisa telling me, you know, that people were saying to her, you know, Lisa, are you sure you want to make this movie? <laughs> and, uh, you know, but... I, I understand, you know, you don't, uh, that's not for you. And and again, over time, people are like, I went to one pitch fest and I was, this was before Bruce had said he, for sure he was going to make it. And I went to this pitch fest and I was pitching it and I would go, for, if you've ever been to a pitch fest, it's like speed dating, right? For screenwriters, you go and okay. you- Okay, yeah, walk pitch. us through, walk us through that yeah. experience. So you wait in line to talk to this producer or this development person from that production company. You go and a buzzer, you know, buzzes and it lasts for like two minutes. You get a pitch, they say yes or no. The buzzer goes, you go back up, get in line and wait to go to somebody else. So I had a few things and the special was one of the things that I was pitching. And I would literally go, you know, one table and this person's staring at me. He's like, that's the sickest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you want to do anything like that? The next guy was like, this is incredible. This is exactly what I'm looking for, you know? (laughs) So, you know, anyway. um, To each their own, as they say, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, And, uh, you know, it finally got made. And like I said, just came out, turned out really well, really, really happy with the the job that he did. And then Jacob's wife, another thing, you know, similar kind of thing, going into a screenplay competition, I won the top prize at a couple of screenplay competitions, notably Shriekfest in Los Angeles in 2015. And then that uh, festival director helped me get it to Barbara Crampton because I thought she would be ideal for the lead. And, uh, and Barbara agreed. She was just getting into producing and she um, optioned the script and it took her four years to get everybody together to get the movie made the way she wanted to get it made. Um, and they shot it just this past March, Travis Stevens, uh, the guy who's produced tons of stuff for Snowfort Pictures, um, you know, through his company, but he directed his first film uh, a couple of years back, A Girl on the Third Floor, uh, and now his second film is Jacob's Wife. So, you know, they're in post-production now, and uh, that's also terrific. I've seen, I've seen a cut of that, you know, before it was all locked picture and everything, but, you know, really, really cool um, and I'm really, I've really got high hopes for when that comes out. It's getting a lot of really nice advance word from uh, people who are seeing it and putting it among Barbara's best performances and, you know, one of those things that she'll be remembered for. So. Oh, man. Well, this is, I, I mean, this is great, Mark. I, I think uh, a big lesson to take from 
going into your background is patience, patience, right? <laughs> Perseverance, like, um, yeah, like just sticking because it all moves so slow and then it moves so fast, right? It's like, yes. you, you grind and you grind and you grind and either you can do that or you can't do that. And, it, you know, chances of it working out for you are slim then, right? I mean, how do you... Oh, yeah. Do you just keep writing and you just have a bunch of different projects going all at once and that's how you kind of maintain your sanity during the whole frustrating process or? Yes, I, and it definitely is what I do. I mean, it's def it's definitely an all the time situation. I can't put all of my creative eggs, so to speak, on something like Jacob's wife. You know, I would have gone out of my mind because there were a bunch of times over the four or five year period where Barbara thought, this is it. We have the director, we have the money, we have the other people, and then it wouldn't happen, you know, for reason X, Y, Z. And I mean, that's just, that's very common. I mean, she, and to be fair, you know, of course she's told me that at the beginning. I said, I know uh, that's the way it's going to be. And, and so letting that just kind of do what it was going to do and letting that go and then going to work on this other stuff. So one of the things that I did was, um, I got this idea since Hollywood loves intellectual property. They love to get make stuff that's based on something. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm a writer. I know all these writers. I'm going to collaborate with writers to turn these scripts that I have into books. And then I'll get the books published. And then they'll be perfectly filmable because they will be you know, this written version of this prose version of the screenplay. And then there'll be this interest because, oh, this is a book. And now, you know, we have this great script that's based on the book. And so, you know, ironically enough, that's kind of what ended up happening with the special was I collaborated with James Newman. We got the book published and that was like right when Bruce got the money. And so the way it looked to the outside world was the special gets published in hardcover. The special gets published in paperback. Bruce swoops in and gets the film rights to it and starts shooting it, you know, three, four months later in January. And of course, I mean, the process had been going on for years. All of those that not Jacob's wife, but Jimmy the Freak is a book, you know, the special was a book and on and on with a lot of other things that I had written that I've done these collaborative things with these other writers to get these books into the small press world and um and the cool part is you know they they will have a life now i mean you know you write a screenplay and it goes around town and it doesn't get picked up it's dead that's it you know it's no it's no longer fresh but you look at somebody like um jim thompson who wrote his books in the 50s and 60s and you know hollywood just keeps going back and remaking and readapting right there was that whole jim thompson phase in what was that, the early 90s after Dark My Sweet and, um, you know, uh, the Grifters. And there was one in the 70s, too, with the getaway. And uh, and so I now, um, what's his name? Yorgos Lathinos is doing Population 1280, which has already been made once before. You know, so books have this different kind of evergreen quality. And that was something that I thought it would be good to kind of tap into that. And these things will be you know, forever on the shelf. And if somebody makes a movie out of it now, sometime in the future, somebody could get interested in that again and, uh, you know, make another movie out of it or, you know, revisit it or whatever. So, yeah, just kind of doing a lot of 
that as well and trying to get those things going, you know, other film projects going. So I've got another thing that is, um, that was held up because of the pandemic that's based on a short story of mine called The Black Jar Man. And then I've got a couple of other things that are kind of out there, uh, but nothing that I could, you know, nothing worth saying anything about because, you know, it's not like a, the deal's not done, you know, so, yeah. Hey, Mark, I have a question for you. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you spent uh, you spent some time in Erie, and uh, let's see, almost almost ten years, eight years. So, what would you say if you had to give advice to young filmmakers in Erie? You know, we're as you know, you know, John's a lifelong resident of Northwestern PA, and he's done a lot here. There's not a ton of Johns, but there's a lot of of young people and people of all ages that wanna that want to make films and are at various stages of their of their creative lives here. I mean, if you, you know, as someone who's lived in Southern California and, and worked in the in the industry surrounded by people who make films and, you know, lived here in Northwestern PA and know people here that have made films, you know, what kind of advice would you give to the listeners of this podcast who are a lot of people that live in this area and want to make films? Well, that's uh, a great question. And the cool thing is, is that thanks to this democratization of media, you know, these days, and I was joking about let's go make a film and shoot it on our phone and upload it to YouTube. I mean, I'm only half joking. You know, that's absolutely something that can be done. And uh, there are real feature films that have been shot with iPhones that have had theatrical distribution. And I mean, of course, you know, they've done some extra work, but I'm thinking of like Tangerine, uh, which is a great film and just, you know, amazing shot on an iPhone. Um, what was the Soderbergh uh, one? Um, basketball one, like uh, Fly Bird or something like that, or uh, it's a basketball movie. No, it was the, I'm thinking of the, of the drama, uh, with the woman who thinks she's going crazy. Oh, Un unsane, unsane. Thank you. Yes. Um, and I believe that also was, uh, shot with an iPhone. Um, yeah. and I mean, again, you know, they're doing things with it and so forth, but it's possible. And, and the thing that you really have to do is you have to do it. You have to actually go make films. And so often as an instructor, I talk to students who want to be filmmakers and I'm like, how many films have you made? Well, none. And so, you know, how do you know, what do you want to do? You know, do you want to write? Do you want to cut? Do you want to shoot? Do you really want to direct? Do you want to produce? Every one of those things is a totally different job. And unless you've done those jobs and kind of understand what goes into those jobs, you don't know which of those things appeals to you the most, what you want to do, what you're good at, and so forth. So, um, and no matter what it is that you want to do, then that's really what you should focus on. So I would always encourage, like when I would have students who were in, was a key important factor in the actual film, like make the movie about editing in a way that you can, show your editing skill. You know, not about editors necessarily, but use editing in some way as part of your storytelling. Uh, there was a student of mine who was um, uh, interested in sound design. 
And so I said, okay, make a film that is about sound. Like, you know, that's what your story is about. And my, my favorite story of this kind of thing is there was a student of mine who was interested in acting. And I said, so obviously, you know, you've got to display your acting skills. So she came up with this short film where she played triplets. And uh, each of the triplets had this totally different personality. One was this brash, you know, loud woman. And one was like this, um, you know, really shy kind of uh, person. And the other one was, you know, sort of, uh, you know, different personality. And so then she made herself up completely different, you know, different costumes, hair, everything. She shot herself giving these three performances. She wrote the script about the three of them having this argument about this guy who was coming to take one of them on a date. And, um, and they had this whole thing going on. And at the end, the door opened and it was a doctor who came in. She was a patient in a psychiatric hospital and these were her three personalities in her head. And the doctor was the date. And it was so effective, you know, it was so, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So you be creative with what it is that you want to do. You can really do that anywhere now. And, um, and Erie, I mean, I loved Erie. Erie has so many incredible, cool locations and so many unique things to shoot. I mean, I used to love to go to Wintergreen Gorge. Um, you know, Panama Rocks over in New upstate New York is one of my favorite places in the world. That is just a remarkable landscape, especially this time of year. Um, you know, I love the snow. I love the snow. That's why I made Weeping Woman in the snow because I wanted to exploit that part of, of the landscape and so forth. So I think that, you know, the thing is, you just have to do it and you have to start small. I always encourage my students to start with uh, really short things and learn how to tell st stories in a compact fashion. I'll tell you why on that also. Uh, where I went to school in Southern California, Chapman University, where I got my MFA in screenwriting from, Frank Marshall came to class one time. Of course, he's the producer of The Sixth Sense and Raiders and all kinds of stuff. Um, and of course, after class, all the film students rushed up to him, you know, and everybody's trying to give him stuff, you know, I've got my film, watch my film, read my script, you know. And the interesting thing, I just stood back and I just watched and all these students are like, watch my film. And you know what question he asked every single time? How long is it? How long is it? 15 minutes. No, he said, no. And the next person, five minutes. No, he said, and somebody said 90 seconds. And he said, okay, I'll take that. And he took the 90 second film. And I thought about that and I realized that what he's saying is I can tell in 90 seconds whether you know what you're doing or not. I don't need 15 minutes to know that you're a good filmmaker or a bad filmmaker. I know that in 90 seconds. And, uh, and that says a lot, you know, about kind of where we're at and so forth. And so I, there was a time when I was teaching um, at Penn State and uh, teaching the advanced production that was an assignment, was a 90 second, no dialogue film. And, um, and the students, you know, that's what they were restricted to, figure out how to tell a story visually with impact in 90 seconds. And that's the kind of thing, I mean, that's the kind of thing then that gets to go all over the world in film festivals. If, it's if it has no dialogue, you don't need to put subtitles on it. And if it's good, people are gonna remember it. And if it's 90 seconds, they're gonna love you because it's short. You know, and uh, and easy to program. Of, what's that? <laughs> easy to program. Easy to program. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would say that to students as well from my programming experience at, at Erie Horror Fest. You know, we don't want 45 minute shorts. If the audience doesn't like it, they want to walk out and then they miss everything else, you know, but if it's five minutes, they can just sit through it for the next one, you know, and if it's 90 seconds and it comes up and it blows you away, that's the one you're going to talk about. And, um, and so, you know, I think that that applies not just to people who are in the Erie area It applies obviously all over, but the cool part is it does apply equally to those in the Erie area, you know, also. So that would be my advice. Well, it goes back to the genesis of like films itself. If you look at the Nickelodeons and stuff like that, how it all first started, the little little segments that would come out, the Black Maria and stuff like that, that was the big film camera yep. and stuff like that. And all those were only supposed to be 90 seconds, maybe two minutes and stuff like that. It was, you know, yeah. it was very, it was like a little, it was a little taste and stuff like that. Uh, yep. Mark, I just wanted to ask you real quick uh, for you personally, um, the experience and the difference, and you, I'm sure, you know, this isn't going to be so, I don't want to make this Sophie's choice on you or anything like that, but like <laughs> having done both now, have you come to appreciate a little bit more of the uh, authoritarian rule that you have on writing a novel, or do you enjoy a little bit of the collaboration of doing the screenplay side of things? Well, I'm a writer, so I write everything. I mean, it just depends on, on the story and what you know, what's the best medium for it. I mean, it's a lot like painting, you know, you don't paint every subject in watercolor, nor do you paint every subject in oils, you know? Um, and so there's a great deal of, you know, you think what's the best thing for this. So for instance, I have a play um, that I wrote that's gonna be performed this week, actually live stream from a, a playhouse in the Bay Area and, uh, that was a stage play. And I knew that that idea was nothing but a stage play. There's something very specific about being on stage and about, you know, working with a limited number of characters and working with dialogue and, you know, and all those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think it'll make a cool movie. I'm going to try and make it as a movie, but it definitely is a play. And I think at the same time, you know, there are things that are novels that should only be novels that's not necessarily what i do um but you know it just kind of depends on what the story is and what i'm trying to to get across but yeah i mean i like all of i, I love telling stories so you know that's what i'm interested in whatever form that takes is is good with me well john what do you say shall we uh Let's, move on to sure the so we all like we all like scary movies mark yes so we all like mm -hmm. scary movies. And I think uh, in honor of Halloween, so for the past month with our guests, sometimes with our guests, but uh, most of the time, just the podcast hosts we've been talking about each week, the hosts have been picking a horror movie for the team to watch. And then we discuss, but this week we've all come with uh, a few of our favorites to discuss as a group, and we've asked you to come with some of yours as well. So we're just going to do open discussion on some of our favorites. And uh, I know John was having trouble. You know, the the lists are quite long for some of us. Um, we were trying to keep I, it to three. We were trying, we're trying to keep. To keep <laughs> yeah, we're trying to keep it to three. Um, I know my choices are always very generic and predictable uh and probably pretty no, the most main no. probably the most 
mainstream uh, of anyone else because I, start you know, I'm off. not okay. I'll I'll start off. Okay, the first. <laughs> okay. Oh wait, time out. Can we can we preface one thing? Nobody can have the answer. The Shining. Okay. Oh. We all know The Shining <laughs> is the best horror movie of all time, and there have been countless of wonderful reads and documentaries. It is the best horror movie. Let's just start that with that de facto and move on from there. I'm sorry, John. We all know it. We all know. No, that's it. fine. Then I can list. name another one on the okay, on the list. Okay. I just you think we should just like, me up. There, there's there's wonderful content out there. We all love it, and so and it's been said by great scholars, and people who are point. smarter than us all. So let's just keep that off the list. That's I just want to throw that out there. Okay, I, I wasn't gonna say it, but I know maybe John would. And it's okay, because I know Stanley Kubrick's gonna come up later. I picked these because at least my first one was a pick. My first two are picks based on the fact that I I am not a horror fan. I don't like the genre. I don't like blood and guts. I don't like being scared. Uh, so <laughs> with that said, the first horror movie that I ever saw in a theater because I got dragged by friends, you know, it was a jam it was a packed theater. It was a sold out horror movie. So that feeling of being in a room full of people that were all screaming at the same time, watching the movie scream. Okay. Mm. Watching the movie scream in a packed theater. So this is like teen, you know, the the modern teen, I think scream kind of kicked off this new era of the screen scream horror movies, right? So um, that's the first one. <laughs> and kind of the deconstruction of the, you know, typical yes. genre movie. It was, right. it was pretty inventive in that way, too. It certainly was, because it also went back through all the horror movies, right? Because it starts off, you know, what's your favorite horror movie? Talking about Halloween and uh, Friday the 13th. And all of these movies. So it was kind of cool, of course, starting out with Drew Barrymore and, um, you know, Nev Campbell and all the people that were in that movie. It kind of started off, you know, with Rose McGowan and um, Matthew, what's his last name? Lillard. 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 Matthew Lillard. You know, it brought all these new, new little teen celebs up there. And there was and Drew, plenty of. I was just going to say, Drew Barrymore was, was pretty hot then and to open the movie with that scene with drew barrymore in that fashion was was yeah. really cool it was very cool and like the popcorn i don't know there was something about that popcorn i was like man i don't have a popcorn like that i want to go get some jiffy pop and make it you know like i don't know even just that and like her hair and that sweater like i always kind of wanted the sweater and the pants like i wanted to dress like <laughs> Drew Barrymore and so last night okay last night it was on the CBS Sunday night movie and I don't know if you're aware of this but 60 minutes because now that we're almost 40 we watch 60 minutes on Sunday night and uh right after 60 minutes <laughs> okay so now CBS does this thing right after 60 minutes now they show a movie CBS Sunday night movies and last week it was Ferris Bueller's day off and despite the fact that I could go somewhere else and watched it watch it non-edited for tv and without commercials I watched it anyway with commercials and in the edited version I believe we talked about it on last week's podcast so last night last night Scream was on 
And I was like, yes, I'm watching this. It kind of failed though, because I got tired and went to bed. But um, anyway, I watched the beginning of it. So I kind of had it on the brain anyway. Um, but it was, I was, there was the scene where she's in her, um, Nev Campbell, uh, Sydney is in her room and she's wearing her little, her little flowered nightgown. <laughs> and Mike goes, she looks like you, Erica, in your, <laughs> in her granny nightgown. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's right. I'm an old lady. Cause the You're whole point the is dream. You're living, living the dream. The dream. Live in the, the dream, dream, the scream dream that I that I dress like an, or I sleep like an old lady. Yeah. I, I, just, I, I am no, no, I am no Skeet Ulrich. No, you are <laughs> no. not, honey. No, Can I just jump not. in and say, if you guys are watching network TV, you may be 70. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's back up. We're watching. Yeah. We're watching 60 minutes at 7 p.m. And then the CBS Sunday movie after that. I know, I know, right. it sounds well, terrible. Moving on, moving on. What's what's your number okay. two here? So my number two is another. The other example of this is the the year I was a senior. So that was a fresh. I was a freshman, nineteen ninety six. The year I graduated high school, nineteen ninety nine. Okay, it was the summer I was working at Waldemere. I had just graduated. It was a great summer. Um, great I worked, year for movies. Great year for movies. All of my friends worked at, uh, we all worked at Waldemere together and we worked until 10 and we all went to the late, late screening of the Blair Witch Project. And if you can recall, this was a, their marketing campaign was very creepy because it was like the internet was still kind of a thing that was not, not everybody was on the internet constantly you know, and it was kind of a low key, like, is this real or not? You know, the story behind this was like, there's this movie that's coming out and nobody really knows if the story is real or not. Is it a documentary or is it a fiction, you know? And so we went to see this movie and we were absolutely mortified by it. And we came out, we're like, is that real? Did we just see something that was real or not? Like we did not know if it was real or not. So we came out and Tinseltown behind it is like some woods. And and it wasn't even as built up as it is now on Upper Peach Street. So it was like Wegmans and Tinseltown and there were still woods up there. And we bolted into the parking lot to get away from the woods. And I went home and I, you know, it was summertime. So my window was open and I laid there all night long listening to the sounds of the neighborhood. Like, what was that? What was that? I was but, terrified by that movie. That's the okay. best compliment I think you can give a, a, a horror filmmaker. For I mean, sure. for sure. I mean, I, thought it was I, I just wanted to jump in and ask Mark and Mike, do you think that, I, I think they did such a brilliant job with the marketing there. Because, yeah. You know, that's the market, like one of those. It was, it was the it's marketing like, of the film. Yeah. It's like lightning in a bottle kind of a thing. Like yeah. them doing the found footage uh, it's kind of like with paranormal activity, right? Like those, the chances of you hitting on all cylinders at one time like that with a low budget movie is just, I don't know what we're, Erica, it's a great pick. I'm just curious if Mark and Mike want to share like their thoughts of Blair Witch and why they 
think it well, works. Really well. Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant, and you're right. It's it's lightning in a bottle because it was right at the it was right at that point where like it wasn't going to get spoiled or anything like that, and we were still sort of learning. Crazy to say this now, but like learning of the capabilities and the reach of the internet, and uh, it just well, we didn't did, mistrust like, right everything we read on the internet. We didn't kind of <laughs> right. go, well, that's bullshit, <laughs> and we couldn't look it up right away, like go to Snopes, find out if it's a lie, you know? It was well, like, but right we around didn't the same, know. To talk about like another film that was right around the same time, it, you could still sort of keep that element of like surprise and suspense, like the usual suspects and uh, the Sixth Sense are films that come out right at the same time that have, you know, these sort of catchy endings that if now they came out, they're gonna get spoiled, you know? It's just like, well, but then, be, you can still, but see people want, don't want spoilers and you get labels of spoilers now so if you don't want to get spoiled you can keep yourself spoiler free it's hard i i it's think hard. It's, it's harder hard. i know it's hard. mark what did you think about blair witch well i mean obviously having made last way out right before blair witch and you know kind of being in that zone of hoping that i could hit something um i was very interested in that but i was working for video distribution at the time Blair Witch came out. And um, so I was kind of on the inside. I uh, was pretty good friends with the Artisan Rep, which was the distribution company for that film. You know, they famously bought it. I mean, they're not around anymore, um, but that was this huge success for them. But I knew that it was all this marketing thing. Cause I mean, I was talking to the guy about how they were putting it together and the website that they constructed and, you know, that, that whole angle. And I was really, I mean, I was really fascinated, of course, by that is an unbelievable idea. You know, I can't believe that that is what you guys are doing and the way that you are doing it. And then to watch it uh, blow up uh, the way that it did. I mean, you know, of course, it's really, really remarkable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, it's a, it is indeed a rare thing that you kind of land on all of that stuff at the same time. I think the most recent thing to do it is probably this movie Host on Shutter, oh, which yeah. is the the Zoom movie. Um, you know, those guys got a three picture deal at Blumhouse because of that movie. So it's still timing. possible. That was how about the timing, right? Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but no, Blair Witch is a great uh, is a great choice, yeah. and and Scream is a great choice. Um, what's your third, Erica? Well, it's a tie because I had three. I was told that <laughs> I'm just gonna say all three because I walked. No, I'm not gonna talk through all three of them. The first one I said, and Mike said that's not a horror movie, but I was scared anyway. It was the movie Signs, and I said that when I said that one because again. I drove home after that movie with two girlfriends and we were terrified about the fields on either side of us. We're like, mm, there's aliens in those fields. <laughs> okay, that one. And also I have to give a shout out to M. Night Shyamalan. Mike said the only horror movie that he did was The Sixth Sense, but he makes scary movies that have that emotional tie, that emotional connection. And I always really like that. The other horror movie that kind of has that too that I like is Shutter Island, which is definitely a horror movie. Martin Scorsese, I, I like that. And then um, the torture porn movie that I really like is Funny Games. 
Home invasion. So, <laughs> home invasion. invasion, torture, porn, horror movie, funny games. So there you go. There's my three. Do you want to tell the story, the, the Sundance story? Yeah, about I will tell games? the Sundance story. It was the first, the year that we had this big group that went to Sundance. John was like, let's go to Sundance. So we did all go. And it was the first movie we watched when we got there. And we got in super late and it was midnight. And I think it was the world premiere, right, John? Oh God. I, yes. I was like, and we what had no signed? idea. Like we Mark, had no we hadn't idea. seen the original. Like, oh, it was we had the no remake. idea. Yeah, it was the remake. It was the remake. Oh. We had no idea what we had gotten ourselves into. We just walked in, sat down and I was like, what am I doing here? Cause I just said at the beginning, I don't like scary movies. I don't like to be scared. But and the weird like, thing was like when Michael Pitt and um, oh, who's the director who Brady Corbett walked Brady out Corbett. for the movie in their like white white gloves and they just stood up front and looked creepy and like <laughs> golf balls or something with like these giant shit eating grins on their faces. Oh my God. It was so creepy. We we're like, what the it was hell terrifying. are we getting into? It was terrifying. Cool. So those are mine. Uh, who wants who's to Who's next? Next. Sounds John? like Mike. Go uh, ahead, next, Mike. Okay. Uh, I, I will I will try to be concise here. Uh, the first one I have is... Uh, I'll, I'll go with the personal one first. It's not a very good horror film. I have gone back and I watched it. But uh, it was that first movie as a child that just... I shouldn't have seen it. It was on HBO uh, and like scared the ever-loving shit out of me as a kid. It's Nightmare on Elm Street, The Dream Warriors. So <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Uh, directed by Chuck Russell, and it came out in 1990. Uh, you know, it, it's it's sort of interesting because I do think that somebody sometime will go back and try to redo Nightmare on Elm Street and probably will nail it because there is sort of an interesting, there could be a lot more fun in that world that is explored. Uh, but there is, like, this was a film that um, reached out, exceeded its grasp. Uh, they they wrote a, it's uh, Frank Darabont. Uh, this was like the first writing credit he ever got. And they wrote this like $20 million script and they only got 4.5 million of it. So it was incredibly stressful. And it's also the screen debut of Patricia Arquette. And there's sort of, there's a bunch of funny stories about it because everybody was like instantly in love with Patricia Arquette. But that film, the first film to refer to Freddy Krueger as Freddy Krueger, not Fred Krueger. And uh, that, that, that movie scared the shit out of me as a kid. (laughs) And uh, they, because they had Freddy Krueger and like, you know, the stop motion of him like coming off the banister and stuff like that. And uh, I just saw it way too young, but I've gone back and now it's, sort of comical and stuff like that but there is sort of an interesting like there's bones there for like if somebody ever went back from the nightmare on elm street and really tried to explore that world in a different way Uh, i have to confess i have not seen a single freddy movie from start to finish you you gotta see the first one the first one i would say is actually it's worth its weight the other ones sort of start to get a little bit it gets they get a little bit more comical uh, the next one, and I'm sure that I'm gonna, I'm probably preaching to the choir on this one, is the 1982 film The Thing. I mean, I don't know Good. how you talk about Carpenter, or I don't know how you talk about horror and not talk about Carpenter. And so, uh, fun little facts about this one: the score had bandied about Hollywood for a little bit, and uh, then eventually landed in the lap, and he took the assignment of Ennio Morricone, and they actually they ended up uh, scrapping. A lot of the score and he got he won the razzie 
that year for worse score. They end up years later recycling the score in Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight, and he wins an Oscar for it. <laughs> Don't know how that happens, but that's, that? that, that's what happens. Uh, I love the thing. I will... I, I do enjoy like not even like not even necessarily from a Hollywood or a Halloween standpoint. Love going back occasionally and revisiting that one, and uh, it's you know that that sort of sacred territory. I didn't see the remake that came out a couple of years ago. It's and, not uh, bad. I I would say it's not bad. I'm, I'm sure it's decent, but that the, that original. Uh, by the way, did you know the voice uh, was actually? Uh, do you know this that there's what the computer two- voice? It's actually uh, it's Adrian Barbeau. Barbeau. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that until recently, and uh, she is the only female to be featured in that film. And then the third one, and uh, I, I don't, I hope I am not stepping on one of your guys's, is uh, Let the Right One In. It's Ooh, just like, yeah, the original, right? The original, the original. I never saw the remake of that one too. It's uh, pretty good, but the original is amazing. The original is, I think, the first time that I saw a horror film as like, and, and granted, there's, uh, with respects to uh, some other great ones out there, like Audition and Orphanage and stuff like that, but I think the first one was the first one that I personally saw where it's like, oh, the horror genre, and yes, The Shining and stuff like that, but like the horror genre can be done in not this, because of films like Scream, it had gone so slasher-based, and I saw, you seen, seen the, le- the right one in, it's just like, oh, this can really speak volumes about society and yes it's taking the tropes and the motifs of the vampire genre and stuff like that but uh i think what uh thomas elford's door did or elford elfordson did was like yeah he he really uh he really went in and uh he made a horror film that had some social context to it and it's beautiful i mean it's 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 a work of art yeah well i love horror movies it's my genre of choice and has been forever i you know not everything is horror obviously i told you my first feature is this you know crime drama thing it has no horror elements in it really at all uh but it's it is what i especially like I have a really broad definition of what uh, horror can be. I think of things maybe that aren't typically thought of as horror, but I think of them as horror films um, or horror stories one way or another. Um, but uh, to, to, to kind of cut it down to three interesting exercise here, I'll start with, um, with Dawn of the Dead, uh, with Romero's original, which was a film that I saw like with, I had no idea what it was uh, at a midnight screening, um, actually at a double bill midnight screening, Dawn of the Dead and The Hills Have Eyes that we got out of at like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, and in the days uh, when midnight movies were a thing, I used to go to midnight movies like every weekend. And uh, and we used to, once Dawn of the Dead started playing, I mean, we used to kind of alternate Dawn of the Dead, Clockwork Orange, Dawn of the Dead, Clockwork Orange. Um, and uh, so Dawn of the Dead was so shocking to me uh, the first time that I saw it. I was so horrified by that whole opening sequence um, when the zombie gets his head blown off, when the zombie bites the woman's shoulder and bites her arm and stuff. I mean, I just was, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, and so just purely at that visceral level, I think it's incredibly effective. I know it's kind of hard to see now because the special effects are different, 
uh, these days, but given that particular time period and you know understanding how effective that was, super, super effective. But the thing that I really liked, I like about it, and I still really respect about the film is the incredible commentary that it is making on not just kind of society, but human relationships also. And, um, you know, obviously this was like right when shopping, indoor shopping malls were starting. And, you know, that story of Romero seeing this shopping mall going up in Monroeville down by Pittsburgh and thinking, I want to make a movie, you know, I think that's where this movie needs to be. And, um, and how prescient he is to kind of see the whole thing that's going to spring up around shopping malls. And of course, we're on the other end of that now with the shift to online shopping. But anyway, just that whole idea of the comment on consumer culture. And I mean, I was lucky as a journalist to interview Romero um, a couple of times and talking to him about that. And I mean, he knew that's what he was doing. He was talking about consumer culture, literally, you know, literalized, right? I mean, these people are consuming other people that's really the operating metaphor of the whole thing and that's why it works so well so i love that because i like movies that have or stories that have something else going on in them another layer going on i mean rod serling twilight zone um is some of my favorite stuff because it has so much to say about people and you know human condition and all that kind of stuff and i think that romero really pulls it off with um with dawn of the dead so that's definitely one of my favorites The second one that I will name is uh, a film called Possession by uh, filmmaker um, Zalowski, and it stars Sam Neill and Isabel Ajani. Uh, This is another one definitely not for everybody, and I think some people probably, I don't know, this is one of those ones that's like, well, is it really a horror film, you know? Uh, You know, yeah, I mean, I, I think it absolutely is a horror film, but it's another one that takes this, idea of what's going on with this couple in their marriage and extends that out into this these crazy metaphors and um and then just creates this nightmare landscape that is truly unlike i mean i think unlike anything else i you know some of the stuff in that movie is just unmatched for uh intensity and for you know i mean the subway scene with Isabel Ajani uh, when she's giving birth to the creature is, uh, you know, uh, unreal. Um, so yeah, I, another one, definitely not for everybody, but what, but for sure, one of my favorites. Her performance, my, I just, I just got to jump in and say her performance yeah. is like, I, I, I feel like just a classic, like, give it your all like you <laughs> you feel her pain on yeah for sure yeah break. well and i think i didn't she win the 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 can the prize at can i think so yeah she yeah, should have won a lot so. more <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean you know it's another one of those things that's like not for everybody i mean it's like uh what was that uh Verhoeven movie from a couple of years ago with isabel Huppert? uh was it l uh, that I think no. she should yes yes she should have totally won the Oscar for that movie. Uh, what a great movie! But I mean, you know, of course, not for everybody, um, as most Verhoeven. Um, anyhow, I'm, and by the way, uh, you know, special mention to the Fourth Man, which is also 
one of those movies that I, I think a lot of people probably don't think of as a horror film. I think it is absolutely a horror film and just so incredible. So uh, my favorite film of all time, at least right now, and has been for a while, is uh, Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. I think of that as absolutely a horror film in, in a lot of ways. And it's another one of these things that takes what's going on in this couple's life and you know in their marriage and extends it out into these interesting places that are really frightening and um, you know in a, in an interesting sort of way. I mean, it's obviously it's not at all a traditional horror film, but what else would you call it? I mean, you can't. I don't think you can call it a thriller, and I don't think you call it a drama. Uh, you know, I, I it's think not Stanley, a romance. No, uh-uh, no. I mean, no. I really think. He made horror films, you know? I mean, Dr. Strangelove is a horror film, man. You know, Paths of Glory is a horror film. Uh, the Shining, of course, we said we're not going to talk about, but I mean, it's a horror film. Full Metal Jacket is a horror film, you know? I mean, for sure. And uh, I think that's a, a really interesting thread that runs through a lot of his stuff. I mean, even 2001, to an extent, is uh, kind of... It's like an know, existential... Yeah, for sure. Mary yes. Linden might be the only one that I can't find a horror angle on. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, the Killing, I would say also, um, you know, and Lolita, uh, you know, probably not quite. I mean, that's just, that's a Honey little Trap more... horror film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but Eyes Wide Shut, I think, is, is, uh, is interesting from if you look at it from that standpoint and again with what it says what it has to say about uh you know us as humans especially as married humans i think is pretty powerful stuff that's a solid list man i i still don't own possession and i'm questioning why i don't now because i want to watch <laughs> it right now and i'm sure it's not on any streamer except for maybe Criterion or something. I don't think it is. They did a special not. edition a little while ago, but it's, but it's not a Criterion special edition. I think. Yep, it's got to be a buy. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, solid. Um, all right, well, I'll jump in with... Uh, so I gave a little tease of the story for The Descent. Dorota and I saw it at the world premiere at Sundance. We had There was no marketing. There wasn't a trailer. Um, as is often the case at festivals. And um, I don't like to be scared, really, in movies. I don't like jump scare movies, for sure. And The Descent made, like, you know, lures you in with it's these women, you know, they're badasses, they're going underground, and um, it kind of, you know, it gets really claustrophobic and makes you slowly really, really uncomfortable. And seeing that movie on a big screen... Um, is a is a different experience than seeing it at home. And I just remember, like, I don't know, I feel like I maybe peed a little because, like, <laughs> I was, like, I was, like, in this, this the pressure of uh, claustrophobia, and it really made me feel like I was there. And once, once the things that come out um, underground came out, <laughs> It just scared the bejesus out of me. So I just thought Neil Marshall, that that was like fantastic for me. John, do you have a preferred ending to that film? <laughs> I like the, uh, I mean, I like the the one that's in the theatrical. I, 
and man, by the way, I, I watched the sequel maybe a couple years ago because somebody told me there was a sequel and I'm like, a sequel? What are you talking about? And I watched <laughs> it and do not watch the sequel, I guess would be my, my advice. Um, <laughs> terrible. The Witch um, definitely has a, a strong effect. Um, I think aesthetically, Dorota and I like really think The Witch is like a work of art. And, you know, watching, I know Erica's watching The Queen's Gambit now, uh, the actress in The Witch. I think, you know, we, we will always remember her, her first film when she's a huge, like when she's the next Nicole Kidman or something amazing. And the film is just so well designed inside and out. I think it's, it's, it, it feels, you feel the texture. You really get when a filmmaker takes the time to build you know, all of these buildings and kind of like what um, Ari Aster did with Midsommar, like when, when they're building from like the real materials and they're researching everything down to like the paint and the imagery and you, it comes across that attention to detail, like Stanley Kubrick and his films. Um, it, it seems to make all the difference. Um, those films stick in your head. So the extra effort I think works. Now the question is, what will it, what will I pick for the third film? Um, because originally it was The Shining, and then I feel like, well, nobody's mentioned Alien. Um, I feel like you know, Alien is like classic, classic. We already said Twenty Eight Days Later, which was is to me like a digital horror classic for sure. Um, the Exorcist. Yeah, The Exorcist. I mean, there's so many. So Rose, baby. Rosemary's <laughs> baby. So good. Um, so I'll throw out, and then there's like, is Pan's Labyrinth a horror? I feel like that's kind of like, as far as somebody that designs the hell out of their films, like Guillermo del Toro. Um, so I'll throw out a weird one. Um, since we watched a Apostle, which is like, has a cult connection, um, a movie that really stuck with me is Ben Wheatley's Kill List, which um, was like the first Ben Wheatley one that I saw. But it just feels like like when you're watching it, you just feel like dirty and you have this sense of dread through the whole thing. And it's like, you know, dark and gritty and sweaty. And when the horror happens, like real life, and it comes out of nowhere and it's quick and it's violent and it's mean and... Um, yeah, it was one of the first ones we showed Erica at the film at the Erie Art Museum. That's what I was going to say. I'm like, I yeah. think I've seen this. <laughs> yeah, so I'm okay, going to throw out yeah. a weird one and say Ben Wheatley's Kill List. Okay. Cool. That's not weird. Why is that weird? <laughs> well, because, you know, I wanted to go with a, an old classic, but we'll go, go we'll go with that. something that maybe I, somebody listening to this hasn't seen. And I, then I'm sorry I stopped you from that. saying the show. No, 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 I'm it's sorry. good. Yeah. I, it gave me an, an excuse, Mike, to just name a bunch of them all at once. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, this has been so much fun, man. Oh, cool. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. I, I think so too. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's really been a lot of fun. Wish you the best with the upcoming projects, and we'll have to have to have you back when um, you get a couple more couple more going. Yeah, I mean, and congratulations to you also. I mean, you're really uh, tearing up the festival circuit with an earth. So that's uh, that's good. Congratulations on all that. 
Thanks, man. It's good good timing to see uh, you know, both both of us from Erie. I'm good we're gonna claim you as, you know, from <laughs> partially from Erie. Uh playing the festivals at the same time. Yeah, really, really cool, man. Congrats to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. That's been our episode. Thank you to our guest, Mark Steensland. Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. <laughs>